Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Moodcat, is your old pal Ocho. Hello. How are you doing? Get stuffed. <gasps> I'm recovering from flu and I've still got a bit of my <laughs> anger towards the world. Oh, I thought that was a reference to the late night youth TV style cookery show from ITV back in the day, 20 years ago. If I were to do that, I would have replied, that's Prezi show. Oh, I see. And a very night network to you two. You know, we're now in the late 70s. And I don't mean the year. I mean, we're actually in the late 70s in terms of podcasts accrued. Yes, you told me during the previous take that we had to abandon. Don't mention previous takes. Oh, sorry. Don't pull back the curtain. People still think this is live. It's still real to me, damn it. (laughs) They're all available. All of them. Every single last one of them. Except, I think, for a couple that we did on the radio initially, and then another one that we did on the radio, which actually we never recorded, which was Made Marion. That's right, yes. So anyway, but all the rest, all the podcasts, all the proper podcasts, they're all on sitcomclub.com. They're all available for you to listen to on your preferred podcatcher, sitcomclub.com. It's all looking lovely and what have you. And you can leave comments. Don't leave comments. None of them have actually been legit so far. They've all been very interested in improving our website to some description, which is always basically spam automated crap advert. And sometimes they just quote text from books. That one I haven't figured out. It's a spam comment, and they've just quoted like half of a paragraph from some text. I'm sure I've seen Jane Austen in there somewhere. But anyway, we can't sit here talking about the quote all day. (laughs) What are we going to be discussing today? Lollipop. Open brackets, loves Mr. Mall, close brackets. Sitcom that ran in 1971. And 1972. First series was called Lollipop Loves Mr. Moe. Second series was just called Lollipop because... So I'm trying to think of an adequate reason and I can't. Do you want to know the inside story on this? I would, but I suspect that you're lying. No, 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 no. This is not bollocks. No. Excellent. Splendid. Great. The first series, entirely wiped. Second series, only two episodes exist. They're both available from Network's online DVD store. Black and white copies of what would have originally been a colour show. And just looking up a few details about this the other day, I noticed that back in 2009, a user of IMDb called Gronsel wrote a little review for the show, and within it is contained some information that, of course, we had no way of verifying, because we couldn't see any of Series 1. Gronsel says, In Series 1, the title sequence featured Peggy and Hugh singing about their love for each other which might have been okay for the first episode or a special, but the same wailing dirge repeated week after week probably had many rushing for the channel change button. I'm getting kind of an all-in-the-family image. Oh, yes. The funny thing is that I've... You know, I like tinkering with software, VPN software, smart DNS software, all that kind of stuff. It lets you go into different countries so you can, you know, stream like videos from CBS or NBC if you're in the UK, all that kind of stuff. And one particular site, which is no longer available in the UK, but it's still in the US and has lots and lots of old sitcoms, including All in the Family. It's got things like the Jeffersons and Sanford and Son and Good Times and Barney Miller and all that kind of stuff, is Crackle. I don't know why I'll never, ever learn. I will never learn, but every single time I test Crackle on one of those services, I always go for All in the Family, probably because it's high up in the A to Z. The number of bloody times I've heard that theme tune. Every bloody time. I mean, on it comes, and I think, oh, shh. But you know, as soon as I realise that it's coming, it's too late to do anything about it. So you're saying that this 
was the effect it had on the British audience. The effect that Lollipop Love Mr. Mole, the theme tune, had was probably the same effect that the All in the Family theme tune has on you. I guess so. I'm trying to think of other examples. There must be other examples of sitcoms. Are there any British sitcoms that have particularly long, lengthy, grating in your bloody nerves title sequences? If any occur to me during the next 50 minutes, I'll let you know. I think Dear John does get a little bit tiresome after a while because you've always got the darling I'm home and then picking up the letter from the table and what have you and because it's the same length of title sequence every single time and it's shorter in series two because they've established the premise by then so right who's going to feel this the concept let's have this out so we've got not so much a personality clash in this instance as a nice pairing of personalities because we've got lollipop who unlike her name, is actually not at all very sweet. See what I did there? But instead, she's playing a similar sort of role as Peggy Mount was in George and the Dragon. She's sort of battle-axe figure and very sort of rumbustuous and doesn't take no shit from no one. I'm presuming that she's gone that way. Without the benefit of Series 1, I'm going to assume that there's nice, pure sincerity and deep affection that is then soured by the concept. No. So you think that Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole refers to the relentless hectoring and henpecking no, relationship? Well, well, no, the thing is, you see, what I was getting at there was, even though, yeah, she does do a bit of that, she does sort of get on at him, I think that they complement each other very well. So basically, Lollipop, she is the sort of argumentative one, and she's going to deal with any trouble as it comes along. And Mr. Mole, he is a sort of pacifist and he's trying to placate everybody and so on and so on. He's very easily swayed. But the two of them together as a couple work very well. And even though, yeah, and even though, you know, she's sort of hectoring him and what have you, I don't get the impression that this is some sort of miserable, loveless marriage or anything like that. I think that actually they do get on relatively well. Shall I take over? Was there more to say? (laughs) It's not just about Hugh Lloyd and Peggy Mount sitting in their house shouting at each other. And this is why I said I think that Lollipop has had her attitude changed somewhat by the circumstance, the comedy maypole around which these characters dance. Do you actually have a geographic location for this comedy maypole? It's conceptual. Oh, I see. It's like if Yoko Ono commissioned sitcoms at ATV. She'd still probably come up with something a bit more inspired than, oh, no, let's save our opinions for later. I think that she would have come up with my idea for Stanley Holloway's jig, which I did actually, we, you didn't hear that, listeners, because I never made the cut, but I did have this idea about an LWT sitcom that was partly animation-based and also featured scenes shot from funny angles uh, and a musical interlude following... If you want to start up another podcast where you describe... Your strange daydreams and fancies. I thought you were going to say start up another podcast where I talk about all this stuff that didn't make the cut from last week. It's just some sort of red button extra sitcom club, is Well, it? we lost the discussion of uh, James Last's member. Hey, I don't remember that. I told you I'm learning German, and previously the only sentence I knew in German was James Last hat ein Schwanz wie ein Esel, which you shouldn't really use in mixed company. So anyway, Lollipop, right. So I, didn't, Lollipop, I, didn't, I, didn't, be- I didn't cut that bit. I left that bit in. I'm sure it went walking somewhere in the Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It was it was in the rough edit that I sent you and then when when I came to do the the final edit, it was one of the things you 
reduced in the content. No recollection of this whatsoever. So anyway, right, Lollipop is Maggie Robinson, played by Peggy Mount, who's in a very nice, happy, cosy relationship in a house in Fulham with her husband, Reg, to whom she has given the affectionate nickname Mr. Mole. And their happiness is shattered when Reg's no-good brother, Bruce, played by Rex Garner, comes along, supposedly staying for a few days. He's, he's come over from Africa, and he's got his rather silly, scatty, neurotic wife, Violet, played by Pat Coombs. You've seen Yus, my dear. I have indeed, and do you know what? That's weird that you say that, because I was just about to mention that. Well, it's the same idea, isn't it, as a happy home life ruined by some freeloading swine? It's the fact that you just said no good brother, because that's an actual line from Queenie Watts. That's how she describes Mike Reed's character. <laughs> yes, there are similarities with it. I think Mike Reed, I think his character actually moves in with them, I think only from the second series. Before then, he's just always on the thieve and what have you. I want to say on the thieve, he's not, he's not actually going around and burgling them or anything like that. It's not that bad. But yes, now I know what you mean. Now, according to the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, this was created by Jamie Perry at the request of Hugh Lloyd and Peggy Mount. Of course, both of them were well known for their own sitcoms in the 1960s. And of course, they were both two-handers because Peggy Mount, George and the Dragon opposite Sid James and Hugh Lloyd in Hugh and I with Terry Scott on BBC. Much beloved by Sophia Loren. What? Hugh and I, I mean, not Terry Scott. What is, what is, what is this is what happens when you read the TV Times as part of your research. The TV Times shouldn't be mentioning BBC programmes. Well, they interview Hugh Lloyd. This this went out for the first episode of Lollipop Loves Mr. Mall. There was a promotional interview with Hugh Lloyd and he mentions that he was delighted for some reason when Sophia Loren was in the UK and somebody asked her how she spent her evenings and she said, I like to sit up in bed and watch Hugh and I. I don't want to go wildly off topic here, but I am briefly going to. Are you going to talk about that biopic of Sophia Loren where they get somebody who doesn't look too much like Sophia Loren and then make her stand next to Sophia Loren most of the time? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't going to mention that at all. Given that you had the split, Radio Times, BBC, TV Times, ITV, do you think there was actually a big chasm? Do you think that there were BBC-only households and ITV-only households? some considerable time. It must have been some, surely. Yes, yes. Well, didn't you once say that you read a letter that, in the yes, newspaper yes. about the cricket, was it? It, was, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the cricket. It was, about the, it was from 2005. It was in the Times, and it was about the boat race, which at that time had just gone over to ITV. It's back on the BBC now. And they had this just very, very small little missive, and it simply said, next year's boat race, the last one to be televised by the BBC, will be my last one or so. I have never watched commercial television in 50 years. I have no intention of doing so now. And that signed, Captain Brownrig, RN, retired. <laughs> it still surprises me today. I mean, I actually tuned into this morning, the other week, because it was a strike on ITV, so I wanted to see. They made an amendment to it because they pre-recorded it. And they had a couple of people from EastEnders on it. And I've just thought, this is not right. No, just don't do this. I'm very much of the school of thought that is... It'll be all right in the night. Everything except BBC outtakes, Auntie's Bloomers, BBC outtakes only. Gloria Hunniford's We Love TV, ITV clips only, and so on. That's just the way it should be. What about Teleaddicts? Did they have ITV clips? 
I think they had. Yes, they did. They had uh, a clip of Space Patrol once. What I do like to try and spot in old documentaries when you've got that kind of thing going on is where the researchers will have tried to get clips of a property from the other side, for example, but only within their own little universe. So say, for example, if you were a BBC researcher and you wanted... What? (laughs) I've got this image now of them just like shooting reconstructions with their own people. (laughs) ITN News think, well, of course, uh, people were shocked last night watching EastEnders when... Den divorced Angie, let's take a look. And there's like, Michael Elphick is Den. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still got the bloody boon hat on. Okay, so if you're a BBC researcher and you've got to get a clip of Tommy Cooper, you're probably going to get something like an appearance on Parkinson or something like that. So something that's slightly atypical. And if you're over at ITV and you're asked to get a clip of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, then you'll probably get a clip of them appearing at a Palladium, for example something like that. Or maybe you've got access to Pinky and Perky for the three years that they were ITV rather than the 13 years that they did at the BBC. Little things like that. Or if you were going off to find a clip of the two Ronnies, you'd find something from 6970 LWT. And there's that one clip that they always, always show of the two of them. And they're supposed to be Scottish singers and Ronnie Barker's and drag and Ronnie C's in the kilt and what have you and they every time the ITV needed to get a clip of the two Ronnies together on screen that was a clip that they always got out because it was in colour and it was recognisably the two Ronnies together and I miss those days and I wish they would bloody well come back because all this stupid shit of people's clips just turning up here there and everywhere bloody Channel 5 running 100 funniest comedy clips with Del Boy falling through the bar no if Channel 5 want to have a 100 greatest sitcom clips show it should be from their own bloody sitcoms and nothing else let's see them deal with that situation so uh, Lollipop <laughs> what do you make of that then? I mentioned Jimmy Perry didn't I? <laughs> Yes, you did. Yes, many, 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 many months ago, yeah. What did you think? I actually quite enjoyed Lollipop. What? What do you mean, what? I quite enjoyed it. It was all right. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> Hang on, but, no, wait a minute. Hang on a minute. I watched this one with you, and we're going, oh, come on, yeesh. What's... The first one was a bit of a drag. The second one was laugh out loud in places. But we'll get to that. So, okay, the first one was the first episode of Series 2. And actually, it surprised me a little bit that it took them a good six, seven, eight minutes or so before they actually explained who this other couple was next door. So I suppose that they're assuming to an extent that people are familiar with the premise already. Whereas I was sort of wondering... It did not feel like an episode one of a series, did it? No, no. Our interest was initially aroused because we thought we were going to see another one of internet's products we (laughs) thought that maybe they had expanded beyond radio production and gone into miniature televisions how much would a miniature television like that cost in 1972 enough that's crazy a lot of money i I guess we're gonna have to call that an acceptable break with reality but i can't stop i can't stop thinking about it we don't know if it was color either that's a really good point. Of course, that's a good point. Yes, because we've no idea. I'm assuming it was black and white. Uh, I think that would have been a bit of a stretch. I don't even remember. Well, seeing... the thing is, is that they show a lot of clips of this mommy movie that they're watching, 
And there's something about it. Unfortunately, being a telerecording, you can't tell. Something about it tells me it's all specially shot footage, and I would not have been surprised if, for some reason, this classic mummy film that they're watching would turn out to be on videotape. <laughs> now, quick deviation. I don't want to go off topic again, but can we just have a quick peek in the mailbag? Because on the morning of us recording this, or rather about 12 hours ago, there was a nice little conversation that was going on via the sitcom club twitter handle which if you don't know already is at the sitcom club and it was between mike scott and squiddy and they were talking about vt and film for interiors and exteriors and so on and i threw in a couple of clips i think we've probably mentioned them on the cast before there's one scene from step to and son in 1974 where you've got both vt and film for the interiors in the same scene fantastic when howard runs upstairs and catches albert doing some funny business with the floorboards and Squiddy then replied and mentioned, of course, baby Jessica in Some Mothers Do Album, that she normally appears <laughs> yes. on film when Frank's speaking to her. There's also that episode, I think it's second episode of series six of Till Death Is Do Part, where you've got Elsie supposedly in Australia having a conversation with Alf and she's on film. And yet there's some weird chroma key-esque business going on with a false rostrum camera backdrop to illustrate sunny Australia. It's bloody brilliant. It's like, all the different formats rolled into one. So what I want to see now is a show which features not just VT and 16mm film, but frozen some 8mm, just for shits and giggles. Mention the polo. Oh god, yes. <laughs> this remains the finest use of multiple formats in the same programme thus far. It's an edition of Southern Television's evening news programme Day by Day, and they have a nice little introduction with Fred Dynage in the studio and David Bobin at the polo match, wherever the hell it was that Prince Charles was taking part in that day. And we have Fred and David supposedly having a conversation with each other, even though Fred is live in the studio on VT and David Bobin is recorded on 16mm. It works. It does. But they also they turn and, and look at the other as well. It's beautifully, beautifully choreographed. Now that actually reminds me of one of the extras that you'll find on the DVD of Doctor Strangelove because on there you have interviews with Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. What they actually are, they're interviews that they've recorded with just one half of the conversation. So all you've got on the right hand side of the screen are the actors themselves and they are delivering these answers and they're both, they're on the telephone. And supposedly what then happened with these is that a local television personality from whatever your nearest affiliate station was would then sit there and record these questions with a telephone to ear as if they were actually having an interview with Peter Sellers directly. And of course, the whole thing was all fakey blakey. It's fascinating to see it in its sort of raw state. So anyway, I'm betting that the, the mummy move. Oh, dear. Sorry. There's a bit that annoys me already. This gag. The mummy gets out of the mummy's tomb and it's a woman. And... Pat Coombs' character says, I've never seen a mummy mummy before. Which, you know, it's already sort of at the lolly stick level of humour. And then Rex Garner goes, yes, all they need is a daddy mummy and a baby mummy. It's like, yes, yes, thank you, we understand. <laughs> I'm going to hazard a guess that the television was black and white. Okay. Because I would have been astonished if that had been... I mean, I don't remember... Okay, you know, you would often see a version in the 80s, for example, for those combined TV and radio and cassette deck units. I don't even remember seeing an advert for a colour one of those until, like, the mid-1980s. 
and what have you. So, God, do you remember those little televisions that you used to get? Like the ones with a really, really tiny little LCD screen? Yes. I got one of them finally in 1998. Oh, it was and? a shit. It really was. It was awful. <laughs> oh, what a bloody waste of money. I must have paid about 90 quid for that. And not only was the reception crud, but even if the reception was perfect, even if you actually stood under Hannington Transmitter itself, it still looked like shit because it's just a stupid little LCD screen. It had better images on Buddy Etch-A-Sketch. They certainly weren't as good as what they had in 72. Bloody hell. Technology gone backwards. Anyway, so we've got like basically that that's the basic premise. We've got the two I just couples. had to go back and check what the title of this episode was. Because the title of the episode usually tells you what the emphasis is. This this one is just so off that I couldn't tell you what the plot was for this episode. In fact, do you have a transmission date? It is the seventeenth of July, nineteen seventy two. Right, I'll go and see if there's a write up I can find. Seventeenth of July said, right, okay. This is a weird failure on the level of craft. Are we being snobbish? Because last week we kept cutting Esmond and Larby a break every time they went in the opposite direction from normal sitcom structure. And this one doesn't, and it just annoys me. This one does things that wouldn't normally be done, and it strikes me as a failure. Okay, the reason I think that we might fall into that trap is because having watched... Okay, and certainly as far as... A comparison's concerned, we've had the benefit of watching all of Hobbit Reigns. And you know, we've only seen like two chapters of Lollipop, so to speak. We know with Hobbit Reigns and with other Esmond and Larpy shows and so on that there is an overall story arc that is going somewhere. So we can cut them some slack when they occasionally veer off because we know where they're gonna get back on the path. Yeah, full of strong character. Whereas moments. with something like this, you suspect that it might just be a sort of week-to-week thing that characters are going to bend according to the plot that they're given and that there isn't actually you know, a really strong structure and strong characterization. Which, like I say, is unfair because we don't know because we can't see all the episodes because most of them might. Both couples have trouble with their sleeping partners. Things go bump in the night and the television set vanishes in the day. So even then, it's not like a... Here's what happens, diddum tish. Not like Reg gets a new job as an ice cream man. That's a plot. That's comedy. It's right. They're watching this mummy movie with this television that for some reason they're keeping secret from the other two. I guess because they haven't paid their rent. They have bought an item so expensive even Alan Wicker couldn't afford it in 1972. <laughs> hang on, hang on, breaks on. Are you party to some sort of information that suggests that Alan Wicker was the top of the Sunday Times rich list in 1972? I'm thinking, who's rich and of that time? Well, he must be rich because he flies around meeting rich people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm presuming they bung him a couple of quid every time. So you, you didn't think of... Like, I'm, not, I'm not like saying that he, he goes off and meets millionaires and nicks their ashtrays. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a bloody conclusion to every edition of Wicker's Wall. Imagine going out for a stroll and you see a piece of waste ground and there's, there's a Ford Fiesta parked on it with the boot open and there's Alan Wicker standing next to it with a bunch of Onyx table lighters. <laughs> Roddy handwritten sign. <laughs> Cheap lighters. <laughs> Classy. Fiver a throw. And he's used like he's used three different colour markers on the sign, so you know it's sophisticated stuff. You'd, high rent you'd be a bit taken aback, wouldn't you? I, I would be quite shocked. I suspect that on closer examination, 
it probably wouldn't have been Alan Wicker. It may well have been... Fife Robertson? No. Um, Spiv, Dad's Army. Oh, Private Walker. Yes, there you go. <laughs> I was going through different... <laughs> you, you, were, you, were, you were going through different television interviewers. And, I mean, I would have been intrigued to, to think, how, how long would it have taken to get to, say, Bernard Falk? We could have been here all night. Not that I'm suggesting that Bernard Falk ever sold lighters out of the packet for forward. That didn't happen. I mean, we don't know what they had in store for the latter editions of Sin on Saturday, but certainly that didn't happen in any of the ones that they actually made. Anyway, okay, so there they are in bed, separately, two couples. Okay, And you have a really horrible bit of double entendre over the word it. Oh, we yes, can have it in our bedroom. Yes, because they're fiddling with the aerial, aren't they? Did they actually say at one point we can't get it up or anything? Was that was that no? Did I imagine that? No, I, I think you did. Oh, shame. What's you like doing? He's rubbing all of you lay in his face or something like that. Yes, the title of the episode is "A Marked Man." So I had to check because that would tell you what the where the emphasis lies in the story, and it's the fact that he he's got a wrinkle because makeup hasn't actually provided Hugh Lloyd with his wrinkle, so you just have to accept it as red. Maybe if you're watching on a TV the size of Pat Coombs and Rex Tynan's... What's he called? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's his name. Rex Garner. <laughs> that's a great, no, that's a great now. He is Rex Tynan. Got to take your first answer. You wouldn't notice, but he doesn't have this wrinkle, but he's complaining he's got a wrinkle, and Lollipop persuades him that that's because of his no-good brother. And sister-in-law, they're aging him because it starts with him, he's having an exercise. Flinging his eggs, <laughs> flinging his legs in the air, <laughs> like he just don't care. <laughs> and yes, he covers himself with moisturizer because he's the first metrosexual. <laughs> and that should have been the name of the show. <laughs> he tries to go to bed with this gunk on his face, and lollipop complains. We're coming to another one of my failures in basic foundation, which no doubt he also wears. To prevent oil of Eule stains on the pillow, he's going to put tissue paper on his face. In doing so, he gives himself the appearance of a mummy. The thing that gets me is he's already mentioned that he knows that they're probably next door watching TV, watching Revenge of the Mummy. He shouldn't know that. Does, does that make sense? He shouldn't have that piece of information because otherwise he should be mildly aware. He's already got mummies on his mind. He should burst into the room being completely unaware that he looks like a mummy and also unaware that Rex and Pat are watching a scary movie about a mummy. Uh, I can yeah, tell you don't agree. Yeah, I can tell you uh, think that I'm being unfair. Well, uh, yes and no. But I mean, all, all I'm thinking is when he goes into the room, he's just sort of there with his sort of mummy face on. But... What if he'd gone into the room and just thought, okay, but hang on a second, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this properly. So he goes into the room, just sticks his hands there, just goes, <gasps> and just he keeps on going on for about 30 seconds or so. Well, the sound you made certainly indicates something that would take a lot of toilet paper. <laughs> no, he shouldn't know that they're watching a mummy film. There should just be that, because otherwise it's like it should slightly occur to him what he looks like. It just, I don't know, it just takes the guilt off the gingerbread for me. He's a naive fella, though, isn't he? Well, make him more naive. Take just one piece of information away from him. What movie's on that night? 
rather than I think they're watching a TV, she's uh, just go in and see what they're doing. Okay, I'll go in and see what they're doing. Burst in the door, Pat Coombe screams. End of part one. It's not very likely they're going to be watching, say, Saturday Night at the Mill, though. I mean... No, he shouldn't even know that they're watching TV. But but he's heard them saying, I can't get it up next door. Well, he shouldn't. Well, okay, if I, he, he, should, he should hear this. Okay, actually, no, you, that, that does bring us a rather... <laughs> they're making a lot of noise in there. I think they're having sex. Well, just go in there anyway and tell them to stop. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. That 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 is that is weird. Okay, he should know they're watching TV, but he shouldn't know that they're watching Curse of the Scrolls. <laughs> no, I always walk like this. No, what they should do is if they've spent all this bloody money on a TV, damn pair of headphones for God's sake. What if they were watching Saturday Night at the Mill? What could he make himself resemble? <laughs> How could he make himself look like Bob Wellings? Would he get the jacket or something like that? And would Pat Humes still scream. He makes himself look like Sergeant Bilko, a.k.a. Paul Coyer. So, the Saturday night feature film. They're watching ITV because the Saturday before this was shown, the Saturday night feature film was Peter Cushing and Andre Morel in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Actually, do you know what? It's my bad, as they say. You, is Saturday night at the mill, is that BBC Two? That's BBC One, isn't it? So what would they, what would they be watching on BBC Two? I want to try every possibility. What other things could could Hugh Lloyd storm in dressed up as? Right. Are we, okay, now hang on. Do we want to put this down to a specific day? Because I've just realised that there is actually a flaw in my logic. The following day is Saturday because we find out that it's Peggy Mount's favourite viewing night of the week. Oh, so it's Friday, right. So, so they're showing, Friday showing a mummy so, film on Friday. Fr- okay, right. are we, are we going to put a date on this? Because I can look No, we're just, saying, we're just saying it's an average Friday in 1972. Right, well, let's work this out. Okay, so do we want to do the Friday before this episode went out then? Is that what we're doing? Okay, I'm, I'm going there. Right, so, okay, same here. You don't get this level of detail before the podcasts. The Friday before, 9.20, The Man Outside with Rupert Davis. And then 10 past 10, Dave Allen at large. Oh, well, hang on, hang on, we've got a problem here. Because possibly Hugh Lloyd, certainly Pat Coombs, they're the kind of character actors who might have been in the sketches in Dave Allen at large. So are we suggesting that they're going to end up seeing themselves on the little television? And on BBC Two, Sport Two, dope taking in sport. No, hang on, that's not a contest. This is a documentary, is it? Ten past ten, Sport Two, dope taking in sport, golf from Murfield in the test match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the past is really is another country, isn't it? Well, okay, I can see why they went for the mummy idea, but he still shouldn't know that they're watching a mummy movie. <gasps> he oh. should have had some excuse to wrap his entire head in toilet paper rather than just put three sheets on. I guess what I've just seen the same night, the same night as all this was going on earlier on, half past seven in the evening in some regions, in for a penny! <laughs> right, give me this little television set, I want to watch it in for a penny on it. So we still haven't really got a plot other than Hugh has a wrinkle on his cheek that we can't see because they don't show up in standard definition. I don't want to complicate things further, but there is one other idea that does come to mind. They're listening to them through the wall and they can hear all this din. Why don't they necessarily think, listen to the pair of them next door making all that noise, listen to the radio. That's true, yes. And if they had been listening to the radio, Radio 2, the clever old kid. No, let's not go through all the radio. Is there any possibility this could have been taking place at 6.25 in the evening? Because I just want to see Hugh Lloyd as a ping pan for... <laughs> In the car. 
the sports car that pulls outside. Does it pull outside Grauman's Chinese or it, it, was that it an idea up. that you... No, it does. It, it does. Is. It pulls okay, up. fine. Right, okay. It pulls up outside the Chevy Chase Theatre. That's right. Um, <laughs> I know this isn't actually getting lollipop reviewed, but can we just mention that you thought that the Chevy Chase show was shot inside Grauman's Chinese and he had it renamed the Chevy Chase Theatre, which is not very likely. <laughs> Well, it was it was a funny old time, but I mean, no, I I really I genuinely did think that. I, I realised now where it went wrong. That he did he think he had like the sidewalk <laughs> pulled up with all those movie stars' handprints. He does a skit about that in the opening edition of the Chevy Chase show, so it's not all that unthinkable. And then when he pissed off about a month later, they put it all back. As it turns out. This tiny television is is so ridiculously expensive. I think it's paid for on an instalment plan. And Victor Madden comes round from the finance company saying, we're going to have to take your television. And somehow he ends up taking the wrong television. I've watched this episode twice and I still can't remember exactly how she ends up sending him into the living room. Or at one point he thinks that Pat Coombs is trying to seduce him. Yes. And she says, oh, it's upstairs. And then he glimpses into the living room and notices the TV there. I, I wonder about that. I wonder if she's just sort of thinking, just for a moment, yeah, take that bloody television. Bloody whinging and sneaking in the middle of the night, dresses mummies and what have you. Bollocks to them. It's not, yeah, it's not that's very that's Pat Coombs thing, is it? It's not, but against type. Hang on a minute. Peggy Mount and Pat Coombs, are they playing the same characters in You're Only Young Twice? Well, then we'd have to think what happened to their husbands. It's not going to be a very happy thought, is it? We haven't actually left ourselves much time to talk about the second episode, which was the one that you enjoyed. That's where all the action is. But that's really enough of that episode. (laughs) You say you've watched this twice. Yeah. So the upshot of all this is that Peggy Mount says, now listen here, you couple of wrong-uns. I want my TV tonight because it's Charlie Cheeseman's... Now you're saying about mentioning the other side and mentioning... BBC shows and ITV shows. Mentioning completely fictional shows feels like a bit of a cop-out, doesn't it? It does a bit. It would be nicer if she just listed all the stuff that was on ITV there and then. But the thing is, of course, that's got to build in repeats because you don't want her actually giving specific listings for Saturday night in July 72 if this thing gets repeated. Okay, so it ends with Lollipop and Mole in bed watching the little internet telly. Am I right in thinking that the other couple are under the bed? Why? Telly addicts. Why are they under the bed? I suppose we're meant to take it that Reg and Maggie... Let's let's start using proper character names to confuse people. Reg and Maggie don't actually know they're there. They won't be able to see the damn screen, though, will they? Because you have to hold the thing about six inches away from your face to get any kind of view. Maybe they're just, like, listening. Right. So the way that you've described it, it's perfectly normal and it's an acceptable sitcom ending. The way that I would describe it would be that Lollipop and Mole sat up in bed watching telly and meanwhile Mole's brother and his wife have snuck into their bedroom and are hiding under the bed. Now that just, the way I'm describing it, it sounds vaguely sinister. As if there's some sort of voyeurists or something. Did they actually sneak in to watch the television? Or are they just waiting until the television goes off and then they want to see what happens next? This is a very dark area for an ATV sitcom to go. They're going to wait until Lollipop and Mr. Mole nod off and then they're going to nick their Onyx table lighters <laughs> and sell them down the market. 
Well, that was episode one of series two. And then we fast forward to the penultimate episode of all. And that one is a bit more lively. We've got some exterior shots. And when we say exterior, we mean inside ATV studios, because there's not really any exteriors involved. And we've got an actor who looks a bit like Larry Grayson. Which actor looks like Larry Grayson? The cousin, whatever his name is. I'm not seeing that. But then again, I've seen him in other things, Neil Wilson. He does look like Larry Grayson. Well, I've been watching some Larry Grayson recently. And it it wasn't the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw Neil Wilson. Well, I just thought, oh, look, it's Neil Wilson. He's played policemen in things. And he was in the same episode of Doctor Who as Ellis Jones. Ah. He played a country bumpkin in a John Pertwee story, which means death, because John Pertwee Doctor Who stories are basically contemptuous of anybody who isn't middle class from the southeast. <laughs> is that a fact? I don't know about Doctor Who, so is that... Yes. That read? yes, that's a fact. Okay. So anyway, brother and wife are being slung out for a couple of weeks because... Hugh Lloyd's cousin and his missus are coming round. And they're nice. And they don't get on Peggy Mount's nerves. And they pay their whack. And they're vegans, which is... Where are Bruce and Violet going? Well, they're going to Mrs. Axelby's down the road or something, aren't they? Okay, okay. I just made Mrs. Axelby up. She's unseen character and I being served. But she'll suffice for this purpose. I've seen this one three times. What? Yeah. That's more than anybody's seen it, surely. That detail didn't get through somehow, what what exactly Bruce and Violet were doing. And there's some talk about we've got to be nice to him because he might die. Very cold, mercenary stuff. Yes. And also, the appearance of an elephant's foot. That's something you don't see in sitcoms these days. Five-toed elephant's foot. When have you ever seen Lee Mack carrying one of them and not going out? I haven't watched the last three series, so you might do it every episode for all I know. <laughs> Bloody annoying keychain this is. So the only thing about the incoming cousins is that something funny about them. What is it they are? Is it vegans? Is some weird thing like that? No, they're just vegetarians. They say we eat neither flesh, fish, nor fowl, but that just makes them vegetarians. They probably don't say anything about not eating any products from animals at all. No, they're probably vegans. Well, they would have said we don't eat any products from animals at all. They wouldn't have just said we don't eat flesh, fish, or fowl. Yeah, but he was just using that as shorthand. Because well, I'm not, I'm not saying that vegans are weird. What I'm saying is that in 1972, in a mainstream sitcom, anybody who's you know like sort of vegetarian or vegan or whatever. This is like, one of those annoying know. sitcom communication, not breakdowns, withdrawals. They do not bother mentioning ahead of time. By the way, we're vegetarians, and when they get to lollipops and moles they act all sniffy as if everybody else is a vegetarian and it's only these two they've come to stay with they're the weirdos who eat animal flesh not saying there's anything wrong with them being vegetarian but it, it is that weird thing of you should just know that you should just know we don't it's a thing that we you keep getting in sitcom a piece of information that in normal everyday life would have been communicated that just isn't it is a recurring theme. I should mention, by the way, that Larry Grayson's wife is Carmel McSharry, who is Mrs. Hollingbury in In Sickness and Health. Isn't she in the Liver Birds? Not only is she in the Liver Birds, but she's in the new Liver Birds, 1996. 
Oh, yes, she gets reassigned. <laughs> That's right. Yes. She's the mother of somebody she wasn't the mother of in the original. Oh, she's in a few episodes of Unloving Memory as well. And she's in an episode of Sharon and Elsie. And a couple of episodes of Hallelujah. Yeah, she's she's popping up here, then, everywhere. Cribbins 69. Why are we going to review Cribbins? Does it exist? I have no idea. Don't ask questions like that, then. <laughs> Even for... The early 70s, when things were a bit different, I think having an entire sitcom based on, oh no, they're vegetarians, oh, would be pushing it a bit. It would a bit, yes. So you but... have to give them another characteristic, and they are Satanists. <laughs> but no, as it turns out, Arthur and Diana are Scottish, and this is a source of great embarrassment now, okay, now you're deliberately saying these things whilst you know that I'm looking up Cribbins on LostShows.com. Apparently, Cribbins still exists, except for the episodes that were made. Except for, for viewers comedy. in Scotland. <laughs> except for the All Star Comedy Carnival editions. But no, Cribbins sixty nine is safe. So that's next week on the Sitcom Club. I've no idea how we're going to get hold of it. Anyway, <laughs> right now. So, okay. well, the the title of this episode is Lollipop and the Two Bears. B A R E S, because they're a couple of naturists who even managed to work in the title of a Harrison Marx film <laughs> as part of their spiel, because they are naked as nature intended. It's just a pity that they didn't actually forecast the existence of Come Play With Me by five years. It's very fortunate in many ways. Again, they haven't mentioned this. They've brought their weird little sunscreen so they can stand behind it and get themselves some sun without... This is an odd one. The only people it guards them against are people in the garden. If you're at an angle where you can see over the fence, you can see over the sunscreen and you can see their anatomies. Like the next door neighbour is doing. Like the next door neighbour does, climbs up a stepladder. It, again, it's, there's a slight failure on the basic craft. There is the amusing thing, which is, right, Mr. Mole is very easily led, apparently. We, we'd have to have seen all the other episodes to know how consistent a characterization this is. And he's... Just a few speeches immediately persuade him that he needs to run around in the nip, saying, I'm free! <laughs> that is an expression you really don't hear anymore, isn't it? Well, we we, we, we used it before when we were talking about uh, this Rodan's The Thinker. Or was it? No, it was the other one. It was The Lovers, wasn't it? We are talking about Arthur Negus. <laughs> ah, yes, Arthur Negus and Joyce. Let me add this to the list of tropes, because you've got there this business about not imparting the crucial piece of information ahead of time. Sort of going the other way, so to speak. When the time comes for them to impart some information, or in this case, you know, they haven't got any choice but to come out of it, they do so in a way which is almost evangelical. There's no hint. God, did we not mention that we like to get our kit off and hang around in the garden? I'm most dreadfully sorry. I hope we haven't offended your neighbours or anything like that. No, it, it's like... Ah, lollipop, Mr. Mole, come and join us in the Garden of Eden as nature intended. <laughs> what do you make of this, Mrs. Woman? You know, all this, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> what, he does a foggy? <laughs> By Jove, Mrs. How's that for a tetty and neat? <laughs> but no, it's like over there, I've, I've got, for people who are only listening to the podcast and are not watching the special video stream, which doesn't exist, I've got my left hand out here to indicate 
passing on this information ahead of time. And then my right hand is out here to suggest passing on the information when it's already too late in such a way as if they were on some sort of bloody infomercial. And you think somewhere in between the two, there's going to be a happy medium. But no, it's all or nothing. It's all out or about, isn't it? It's weird. Lollipop finds them standing around in the garden. She's naturally shocked. And then she sees her husband just walking around with a towel around his waist, waving his hand in this bizarre, cheerful fashion. Actually, one thing that the TV Times article I read, Hugh Lloyd mentions how influenced he is by Stan Laurel. And then at some point he loses his towel. But not in the garden. He goes running into the hall. Was that the bit you thought was the lively perked? I, I, I like the part where he, yeah, he loses the towel and straight away there's Lodger's couple hanging around in the hallway waiting to get a good eyeful. But this sounds silly to ask this, but I have to ask it anyway. I don't want you thinking I don't know the answer to this, because I do. I know what the answer to this is. Why has Hugh Lloyd got a towel on? If he's been converted to the cause of naturism, then why the towel? No, I know the answer is because it's a peak time sitcom. There was no possibility that he'd be walking around the buff in the kitchen. I get no, that. No, you do but... have a point, which is why does he have a towel on that we can see? Why does he just not walk in and wave? And we know from Lollipop's reaction, but he's shot from the waist up. Yes, yeah, so for to take it later on, that when he sort of runs into the hallway and Backcombs faints. He's supposed to be completely in a state of nature then. Why do we have to have him in the towel? Yes. No, you make a good point. Again, a, a falling down. of There should be ways of conveying this information without having to take some of it back. And then everybody goes home. That Actually, you're right. They do go home. That is what happens, isn't it? The neighbour comes around to complain. For some reason, Bruce and Violet have not decided to stay where they're staying and they've come back. And then, then everybody goes home, and Bruce and Violet then decide to strip off and steal food from the. That that's the. Why don't they just kick them out? Really, if we if we want to talk about what happens next, Peggy Mount's character is going to leave. Either they go or I do, and Hugh Lloyd. Oh, but he's my brother. Okay, then I'm going. Well, there is one more episode to go, isn't there, in the series? So it's possible. The last. Episode is called Inspector Hardcastle Investigates. There's Dickens to pay in the lollipop household when Reg arrives home late to miss his birthday treat, clutching a mysterious green suitcase. May only be full of old books, of course, but it holds something much more important and a chance to finally get rid of Bruce and Vi. That's just reminding me of that episode of Nelly. Do you remember that one with the pain in the arse window cleaner? He's got that big trunk and he doesn't want to reveal what's in it. Remember that? Yes, what turns out to be in it? I'm trying to remember now. I can't remember. It's dumbbells and chest expanders, oh, isn't it? Oh, right. I thought it was a blow-up doll or something <laughs> like that. I think we actually started this podcast, not on the air, but we started it by saying that we were going to sort of approach this in the same way as we approached Nelly. It hasn't happened, though, because Nelly was a, a laugh riot, and in this, I didn't enjoy myself. Okay, let's put cards on the table and just throw this in for the record because I've said before we don't like to come across as if we're ever sneering anything and what have you so even though we didn't massively enjoy Lollipop bear in mind that this is written by Jimmy Petty man wrote Dad's Army for Christ's sake so what the hell are we doing criticising this come on no I think he's he's let himself down 
Well, are you going to phone him at three? That being said, that being said, this is two out of 13, 14 episodes. We don't know what the other 11 or 12 were like. I think Jimmy Perry's reputation is sufficiently unassailable that that you did a couple of doff half hours in 1972 isn't really going to rewrite history. What about room service? I was going to mention that. Anyway. That's one of um, his though, isn't it? Yes. Now, okay. I'm two episodes in so far. And DVDs don't degrade or anything like that in a hurry, do they? So, I mean, that can sit quite happily on the shelf for, for a while. I've got every episode of Hallelujah to watch first. What? Well, well I've, yeah, I've had, I've had Hallelujah for ages. It's sitting right there. Who could do that? Because I could get it from Netflix. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just, just, just breaks on No, there. borrowing the disc, not streaming. Oh, my God. I thought you meant that Hallelujah was actually on the American streaming Netflix service. It's our title of the week. It's the first thing that loads up on the homepage, no matter what device you're on. Well, it is weird enough that it is actually available on Region 1 for me to borrow the disc. Watched all of Haggard that way. But yes, I don't think they're going to sell us. Netflix, we've had to take down the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to make room on our servers to cope with the demand we're going to be receiving for Hallelujah. Got a whole lot of woman. <laughs> if that was to turn up on Acorn TV, I would be moderately surprised. So the chances of it suddenly being center stage on HBO next month, it's, it's pretty far-fetched. But who knows? AMC are going to be happen. looking around for ideas now that Mad Men's over. But he had a request for Silicon Club merchandise. What do you reckon then? Lollipop Blows, Mr. Moore, there's only two episodes, so available on network DVD, go on. I think it. it is fantastic that it is available on DVD. I think Megre is now coming to DVD in Germany without the English soundtracks. All of Megre exists. BBC show, okay, not as well remembered as it once was, but still it's all there, not on DVD in an English-speaking country. The BBC need their own version of network that they just hand the keys to the cupboard to. No, that's me over here. Isn't it wonderful? What a wonderful world to live in that that's going to be available on DVD. It is a good thing. And, of course, what we thought we'd never see has happened. David Jason's sitcoms for ITV. They're all now available. Anyway, what are we talking about in that vast expanse that we call sitcom next week? That expanse is so vast that we've actually decided to go back to something we've already done. It's time to revisit Man About the House and do the entire lot, all of Man About the House, because watching one series of Man About the House in isolation didn't work last time we tried it, because there just wasn't really enough to say. So just to explain that we have just now spent longer talking about two episodes of a sitcom than it would take to actually watch those two episodes, and next week yes, well, we're the, going the to The reason we're just talking about two episodes is because it doesn't take very long to watch two episodes, and then you can crank out a podcast to buy you the time to watch every episode of Man About the House, and six episodes of something else that we'll be doing the week after. Ah, yes. We will be seeking to truncate six series into the space of an hour and a bit next week. Until then, if you just can't get enough of the sitcom club, and I understand where you're coming from, then you can get all the previous editions, and there are about 77-odd in the archives now, and they're all available at sitcomclub.com. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter as at the sitcom club. 
In the meantime, on behalf of Ocho, who's just advised me over my headset that his recording has crashed, so it may turn out that this is a rather one-sided edition of the sitcom club, and from myself, Hey Human Can't Co, this has been Ourselves. Thank you very much indeed for listening. <laughs>